Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I'm recording this brief forward to the most recent updates to Finding Amber from my hotel room. I've just left the island. I'm on my way to a family holiday in Ireland. But I've just received some troubling news from a family member of Justin Hall's. I've learned that Justin Hall, Amber Manthorne's boyfriend, the man who may have been the very last person known to be with her before she vanished, is now dead. I don't know the circumstances of his passing, and I don't know what this means for the search for Amber. But as you listen to these latest episodes, please bear in mind they were recorded before Justin Hall's death. Once I'm back home and learn more, I will update the series. Please take good care while listening. It's June 2023. In the morning, friends will search for missing woman Lisa Marie Young. Later in the afternoon, my husband and I have been invited to attend a celebration of life for Amber Manthorne. Those who love Lisa have been searching for her for more than 20 years. Amber's family is getting set to mark one year since she vanished from her Port Alberni home. Both women are loved and not forgotten. Driving across the island, you'll see a massive lit billboard for Lisa along the highway. Here in port, a banner for Amber hangs in the trees along the main road through town. Last summer, I remember thinking, dear God, let Amber be found soon so that her family, so that this community is not left with the agony of years of unanswered questions and the pain of not knowing. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 4, Finding Amber. You're listening to Part 1 of a two-part update to Amber Manthorne's story. Episode 7, Forever 40. It's the start of summer 2023. It's already a hot one, with a forest fire burning not far from here. Burning near Highway 4, the Cameron Bluffs fire is highly visible to those traveling the highway. Today, two helicopters are bucketing water from Cameron Lake. I've just wrapped up my latest season of Island Crime, and I plan to spend a little less time podcasting and more time gardening. I'm looking forward to getting my boat out on the lake to bright, sunny days on the water. It's the kind of thing Amber Manthorne lived for. She loved the lake. Her friends should be planning camping trips with Amber, weddings, baby showers, but instead they've been putting together her celebration of life. Because even though Amber has not yet been found, 
her loved ones hold little hope that she will be found alive. It's an honor to be asked to attend this farewell for Amber. I want to be there for her friends and family, to pay my respect and stand beside my community in grief. But Amber doesn't need my tears. She and those who love her will be better served by me doing my job. And that means continuing to push for answers, to keep her story in the public eye. My garden can wait. I need to update Amber's story. Amber's celebration of life is scheduled for the weekend she should have turned 41, just before the first anniversary of her disappearance in the summer of 2022. It's coming up to a year and I've been thinking about a lot of things and I don't know, I just, who, who do I talk to? I'll, I'll tell you the story, yeah. As the anniversary of Amber's disappearance approaches, a young guy named Jeff prepares for a move. My name is Jeff DeRuder. I live in Victoria. I love swimming in rivers. I've been doing it for 15 years. I love the outdoors, try to get out when I can and have little adventures. And some of the best experiences that I've had are swimming down and swimming in rivers in our region. As he sorts through belongings and starts to pack, he spots an item of clothing he's been hanging on to for a year, something he found in a river. It's all about exploration and feeling just what the river is itself. There's so many things to see. There's underwater caves, there's holes you can swim through, there's fish, there's just the water, the smells, the feelings. It's just such a beautiful experience, and the wetsuit really allows you to do that, along with a good pair of goggles. Island crime is about the mysteries of Vancouver Island. And I'll get to where Jeff's story intersects with Amber's disappearance in a moment. But the podcast is also about this place. And Jeff's description of swimming in the rivers takes me on a bit of an unexpected journey. There's just so many beautiful little moments of being in a river and... You feel when the, the slope of the water starts to go more, you know you'll go quicker. Or you hear the river becoming more turbulent and you know that there's something coming. So you become part of that. You're like a bag of water flowing down. I lived in a floating home on the Fraser River for a time. A big red barge made to look like an old paddle wheeler. It was owned by a psychic. You gotta love the West Coast, right? And I, too, love the water. But I found the river unnerving. The murkiness, the fast movements. So it can be dangerous if you either don't pay attention or don't know the river. I hit a section that I didn't realize was a very slot, quick section. And I was like, okay, hold your breath as much as you can right now and keep yourself up. Because I didn't know that that section was there. I looked at the maps and everything before. So it can be dangerous, for sure. Despite the dangers, Jeff finds beauty in Vancouver Island's rivers. And that's not all Jeff has discovered while exploring the rivers here. I did find uh, a person's foot at the bottom of Scuds Falls, and it was an elderly couple. So his body, they were fishing, they, didn't, they went down the waterfalls. His body was kicked out with the, with the raft. I guess she got caught in the undertow. Nine days later, my friends and I went swimming and we found her foot at the bottom of the falls. At first, it's, it's, you don't know what you're looking at, just like anything that's shocking and, and you, you don't know how to process it. So I swam, I swam down, took a breath. I took, took a couple moments to just be like, okay, I'm gonna go look at this thing. 
And I swam down to it. It was about seven feet down underwater in a little back 80 kind of area. And the foot part was, the bottom of the foot was facing towards me with the rock behind it. It was white, very white, pale underwater. Human feet have been washing up on the shores of the nearby Salish Sea for decades. I remember working in the newsroom back in 2007 when this phenomenon was first being discussed. There was talk of serial killers, even aliens. Finding human feet on the West Coast is not all that unusual. The disarticulated remains typically belong to people who have committed suicide or who have drowned. Scientists say that in water, human bodies naturally come apart at the joints, so feet often disconnect from the corpses after soaking. Jeff is telling me this story in part because it's an interesting yarn, but it's also demonstrative of how exploring the rivers can yield helpful results in solving a mystery. Last summer, about three weeks after Amber's disappearance, Jeff finds himself out exploring the Nanaimo River, not far from where Amber Manthorne's white Jeep compass has been found abandoned on the side of a rural road. We went rock climbing on the sunny side, south side of the river there. It's a very common place for rock climbing. And then I always have my wetsuit if I know I'm near a river like that. And basically, uh, I was after rock climbing. Um, we got into our wetsuit. I got into my wetsuit and, um, and people got into their swimsuits. And I kind of get in the water first and I just start swimming around. And um, the first thing I f- was going up the river, and, and it wasn't very far. Like, this is only 100 meters at most of the section that I explored. And it's, it's a deeper section. It's a, a bit of a canyon. It has rocks on either side. There's trees lining all those rocks. The river kind of has sandstone that's hardened sandstone that has fallen into the river and then that gets eroded so it has funky patterns and it's a very popular swimming spot. It's probably one of uh, the Naimo River's like most popular swimming spots just because of the rocks, the water flow, the access, the easy access to it. And, and yet above that section where it's nice to swim in, the river can get very dangerous. You don't want to go in some of these areas. like. The volume of flow through the turbulence of the waterfalls and these rocks, there are a lot of dangerous little spots somebody could get sucked into and get stuck, drowned, sink to the bottom, whatever. Jeff is aware of the risks involved in river swimming. But as you've heard, he loves it and he's looking forward to a refreshing dip. So I get into the water. And I start kind of swimming up on my own, and my friend Anna was a little bit behind. I, you know, I'm always looking underwater. There's always stuff you see. There's fish. There's, there's sunglasses. Whatever you find, there's so many things to see and find. Especially because that's a river that I've never, I'd never explored before. I never swam in. And so I like look down. And I'm like, oh, well, look at that thing. It's like a a white shawl thing. It's like this, you know, loose knit shirt jacket thing. Jeff describes the item of clothing in as much detail as he can recall. It's light or cream-colored. The item itself is dingy, as it's been in the river. It's a kind of a knit with a lacy pattern. He doesn't remember any zippers or buttons, just open at the front. I don't know women's clothing clothing very much, but later on I've looked at this and it's like a cardigan. So 
I like picked it up and I'm like, oh, well, you know, people lose stuff, you know, didn't thinking, not thinking of anything, just like exploring and seeing and being in the moment. So I take it and I pick it up and I think I even put it on. Like, I was like, oh yeah, this is like a shawl thing. It's got arms on it. And like, I put it on my, you know, put it on. I'm like, okay, okay. Take it off and ball it into a ball and splat onto a rock and just throw it onto a rock. He leaves the cardigan on shore and continues to investigate the area. So my friend Anna and I, we go up the river a little bit more and she's exploring some things and we're checking out this little hole that you got to go down into to check out this area. Like literally you climb down through a hole five feet and then out the side of that hole and you into this other little area. It's really weird. It's creepy. But yeah, that's, that's the thrill, right? You got all these little spots you can check out. It's a little bit risky and you can see underwater and all these things. So we're done. Anna starts heading back and I'm, uh, I'm like, okay, I'll catch up and do some other stuff. And right near the end of where it's quite calm, I see these two boulders, these rocks, and the water flows right through the two of them. And I look down and I'm like, okay. So I look down and there's this jacket. It's a brown jacket. I'm like, okay, I'll swim down. I swim down about, you know, six feet and it's stuck on a stick. It's very odd to find items of clothing like this. You find summer clothes, you find like t-shirts, you find shorts, you find underwear. These are the things people take off to go for a quick dip and happen to lose. I don't find cardigans, I don't find jackets. Jeff's aware of Amber's disappearance. His sister has been following this story and has talked to Jeff about it earlier. When he finds the two articles of clothing in the river not far from where Amber's Jeep has been discovered, it strikes him as unusual. So I start thinking, okay, this is weird. What, what, what is this thing? So I, I take it onto the shore and I kind of lay it out. It's kind of like a faux suede exterior with a fuzzy inside. I don't know if you know those types of jacket with a hood. So it's got a fuzzy hood you can bring up. It's fuzzy around the ears and the head. And it's a synthetic. So, And it's kind of tattered. So it's got the, the edges of the seams have been flapping in the water long enough that the seams are ripping apart. And so I look at this and I go, okay, this is, this is weird. So do I go back and get the other cardigan thing, the white thing? And I was like, I, I think I should try. So I go swim up again. And I looked and, you know, a lot of the places it was new and I was quick in the moment. I couldn't find this cardigan thing again. So I grab this jacket and I put it in my wetsuit bag and I bring it home. Clearly this is a female women's women's jacket. It's petite in size. Jeff believes his discovery could be related to Amber's disappearance. So he does what he can to raise attention to what he's found. On the Monday, I phoned the police and I described the situation. And the lady that I talked to, it was a non-emergency line. She said, okay, well, somebody will get back to you. By Wednesday, I was like, okay, what's going on? Why hasn't anybody called me back? So I phoned back on Wednesday. I described the situation again, a little bit more detail, like, hey, like I've been doing this for years and I really hope I can try help. Nothing. I tried again on the weekend, on a Saturday, maybe a different crew was on or something. I could get somebody to call me back. The police didn't call me back. So I reached out to somebody of the admin group of Finding Amber and I'm not criticizing anybody. I, I just, there's no criticism here just telling the story about where I was at and what I was trying to do. And, and so I passed the pictures to her and, you know, okay, leave it alone, you know. I remember the period after Amber's disappearance. The search for Amber is intense. Her family and friends are exhausted and they're traumatized. 
the police have never consented to an interview with me about the investigation into Amber's disappearance. But I know from covering other missing persons cases that there can be a deluge of sightings and tips. As interesting as Jeff's find seems to be, it's likely only one of hundreds of tips the police have received since Amber vanished. The clothing may well be completely unrelated to Amber Manthorne's disappearance. But one year on, Jeff is still hoping his find could help. I was moving, I'm packing stuff up. I saw this jacket again. Clearly, I've been seeing it all winter when I'd seen him look in my closet. Okay, what's going on? Why hasn't this, why hasn't this gone anywhere? I happened to go look online because I hadn't really been following too close. And I look at the photos, the pictures on, on the image search. And then like she's wearing this white cardigan shawl thing in the picture. It's the primary picture that everybody looks at. And I'm sure if people have been following the podcast, they see the picture, they know that picture. I just go, what the hell? How did I miss that? And maybe every woman has a white shawly lacy cardigan thing. I don't know. I didn't go back and get it. I wish I would have went back and get it. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Shannon Murray is Amber's big sister. Up until now, it's been Amber's friends who have spoken to the media. Amber's mom is still too distraught to talk to me. But Shannon has agreed to share her perspective. Shannon has a disability, and she's concerned her speech impairment could distract from what she has to say. So I record an interview with Shannon and ask my Frequency podcast colleague, Stephanie Phillips, to voice Shannon's part of the interview. Shannon is 10 years older than her kid sister, Amber. So I begin by asking for her recollection of what Amber is like as a child. She was hell on wheels. She had red hair. All she needed was the horns and hang a tail. She'd just get into a lot of trouble. What about as uh, she grows into adulthood and you're, you know, having a different kind of relationship as adults? What's what's that like? I moved to Vancouver and she would take off and come to Vancouver and just show up at my work. She'd show up at my work twice, you know, just hop on a ferry. I'd say, how did you even get to the ferry? And where does mom think you are? It sounds like she's got a sense of adventure, a, a lively a lively spirit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She loved to have fun. Remember, the two are a decade apart. Shannon moves out as a teen, and she's not around much. She recalls Amber marrying in her 20s and moving to Alberta for a time. But Amber's marriage falters, and she returns to Port Alberni. Here's how her sister describes that point in Amber's life. I think it was probably a lower period in her life. I mean, she was just depressed. 
think because she had a princess perfect future in mind. Do you know what I'm saying? Every girl at that age probably does. She thought her first marriage to somebody would be her only marriage. So I think she went into a depression there for a little while. But she snapped out of it and, you know, bounced back and really just got her life in order. What do you think was important to her? Do you have thoughts about her values or things that mattered to her in her life? I think she just wanted to be happy. She wanted to get married and have kids and, you know, do what normal people do. I mean, she had a lot to look forward to. And she's a pretty girl. She wouldn't have found a problem finding another husband. She said at one time she didn't want to have kids, but she changed her mind and she was considering that maybe when she married somewhere down the line that she might have kids. Do you have memories about the, the last time you saw her? Do you recall that? It would be here at my mom's house. She'd come out and clean and that's when I see her. We'd smoke a joint and she looked really good. Well, skinny as hell. But, you know, she worked hard for that. She looked good. She always looked good. Amber takes really good care of herself. She spends the money and she takes the time, you know? She's always been like that. She's been the princess of the family, you know? I notice at times, Shannon still occasionally refers to her little sister in the present tense, as if Amber might still be alive. It's something I've observed with family members of other missing people here on the island. They don't know quite what to say. Shannon is not on the island when Amber first vanishes. She recalls getting that fateful phone call from her mom. My mom called me and she said, you gotta come home. Amber's missing. And I'm like, what? I mean, what do you mean missing? And she said, she's missing for real. And she was super panicked. So I hopped the ferry home and, you know, I couldn't get out till the next day. I had to get a ride to the ferry because I'm disabled. So I have a hard time getting around. Transportation and mobility is really the issue for me. You get a call from your mom, then you make your way over here. What is going through your head at that point? Well, to be honest, I thought she'd been kidnapped. She's an extremely pretty girl, you know. A few nights before, Amber said to my mom that she had come home from work one day and the guy she was seeing was higher than a kite in her living room. And so she got pissed off and broke up with him, but he had nowhere to go. So she told him he could have a few more days to stay until he found somewhere to go. So anyways, this is what's running through my head because this is all we had at the time. That's it. That's all. That's all we knew, right? Shannon arrives home to find her mother in great distress. They begin putting together what information they can find on Amber's last known movements. Amber's been missing and she didn't show up for work. We knew that she went home. That guy who was at her place, we knew he's also gone because um, we knew that he was at her place. And the thing is, where she is is way out. It's Great Central Lake. And when you're out there, if you don't have a vehicle, you know, you're staying there. And Amber is the only one with a vehicle. So he was he was staying out there. 
And um, Amber just got off of work, and I guess she was considering reconciling with him. And um, yeah, so she had bought him a shirt and then was on her way out to the house at Great Central Lake to talk to him and give him this shirt. That was all we knew at the time. So when you're you're first arriving, can you just describe what's going on at the house? I, are there friends? Are there police there? Nope. Well, for one, my mom didn't want people there. My mom was just barely holding on, you know, at the time. That was, I think, the second day. And there was one female cop sitting on the couch. What does that look like then for your family in terms of the relationship with the police? How is that going? It's horrible. There is no relationship. We were getting choked, so we went, me and my mom went once, and the female cop came out and she said, you know, somebody's going to call you once a week um, for the next month, and then after that, once a month. And I think they phoned once. That's it. Did you have a sense of how the investigation was going? In the beginning, it was very active because she had so many friends all up and down the island, you know? I mean, we had everybody and their dog looking everywhere, people coming after work, people taking time off work, you know, spending their own gas money. And we had a gas fund going too, and we had donations coming in. Amber liked to camp and go out. She knew people at the camps all over the island. She knew people in Nanaimo because she used to go there drinking. And then she had boyfriends in Nanaimo. So, I mean, all up and down the island. In the beginning, it was just everybody frantically, just everybody looking everywhere. And we were thinking that maybe she's still out there alive, tied up somewhere or something, you know? The elephant in the room in any conversation about Amber looms large here, too. When Amber first vanishes, it is believed she is in the company of her boyfriend, Justin Hall. When he surfaces days later, claiming not to know where Amber is, family and friends are left without answers. Have you or anyone in your family spoken with Justin? Has he called you? No, no, I don't think I could. I just don't think I could keep my temper. I don't think I could. And my mom can't handle too much these days. She's kind of out of the question. We have Amber's friends, you know, our friends doing that for us. They're keeping an eye on Justin and they're keeping us updated. So that way, you know, we don't have to look him up. I've, I've been tempted to talk to him many times. I'm tempted to go over there and, you know, track him down and just, you know, go face to face with him. But I'm told that I'm not supposed to do that. And if he files a restraining order against me, I'm screwed. I don't really care if he filed it against me, go ahead. Yeah, but yeah, nobody will drive me, right? A reminder, Justin Hall was Amber's boyfriend. In the period leading up to Amber's disappearance, their relationship is on rocky ground. Justin may be the last person known to be with her before she vanishes. Justin Hall makes a public statement in an email he releases to Czech News, confirming he and Amber had argued that night, but that she was alive when he last saw her. Justin Hall has not been charged in connection with her case. Amber's friends have described 
how difficult it is for them to observe Justin's behavior online, including his musical statement about what he sees as online harassment. What you mean? What you mean, what you mean? What you mean, you're not subscribed yet? The lyrics are hard to make out clearly. At one point, they include, I will laugh at all the rumors from the social influencers. You can choke up on your dick, bitch. Don't think I've forgotten. You know God can be my witness. And it's not just the music. Justin continues to share photos and videos as well. You may recall Amber and her friend were known as the Chips. Justin makes a Facebook video post about having salsa, but no chips. It's Christmas Eve. I got these chips. And then realize I got no salsa. So I figured I'll go down to the store and get some salsa. Well, there's no stores open right now because it's Christmas Eve. Fuck. So I decide I'm going to make my own salsa. This is my first attempt at salsa. One of Amber's friends tells me they view this as a taunt. As those who love Amber Manthorn mark their first Christmas without her, they see Justin Hall posting video of his family's lovely tree. Does mom know how to set up a tree or does mom know how to set up a tree? And look at this professional wrapping job. Justin's life moves on. For your family, like, how is it to try and move on? Maybe moving on is not even the right word. How, how, how do you just kind of process where you're at? It just makes me angry when you see something like that. It's been a year, you know? I think I've given up hope that he might just give it up. Amber's sister here is stating her opinion that Justin knows more about what happened that night. Shannon also shares a piece of information I had not yet heard concerning a possible sighting of Amber on the evening she vanished. She was seen fighting with him outside of a crack shack off of River Road that uh, that night around 10 p.m. because their neighbor is somebody I know and I've known her for a very long time and she's a very straight up person. She's worked at the mill for a very long time and I've known her since my early 20s. And anyway, she had bought a house next door and she heard the fight enough to like go to the window and see what was going on. And yeah, she said they were arguing and fighting and screaming at each other outside, standing beside Amber's brand new white SUV. I tried to speak with this witness directly. So far, they have yet to respond to my request for an interview. But the mention of Amber's vehicle is a reminder to me that when Amber first vanishes, I learned Amber's mother had helped her secure financing for the new Jeep and that her mom could be left on the hook for the vehicle. Unfortunately, it appears this issue has yet to be resolved. Yeah, we're still screwed on that. We have to pay out. We have to buy that vehicle in order to sell it now. And my mom has to wipe out everything she has. And I mean, everything and maybe even take a loan out to pay for this car. And so you you guys still have your your sister's vehicle and are still making those payments? 
Oh yeah, $600 a month. We don't have the vehicle out here because we just can't look at it. Can't have it in the yard. So I believe it's at the lot up there. That's 30, 40 something thousand dollars. So we're just trying to figure that one out right now. My interview with Shannon happens before Amber's celebration of life. The decision to memorialize someone when they're missing and not officially confirmed dead is tough. The thing is, we have looked everywhere and we don't know where else to look for her. And we've searched, we've searched every logging road. People need closure. People are ready for this. We've talked to family and friends and everybody pretty much agrees that we're all ready to do this. Um, she's not coming back. I still want to bring her body home one day. That would be nice. I think back to this time last year. I was away on holiday when Amber first went missing. When I returned to the island, I had a real sense that the town of Port Alberni was fully showing up for Amber. It seemed every store had Amber's poster in the window, and hundreds of people were searching. Shannon wants folks to know the feeling was mutual. Amber loved being alive, and she loved Port Alberni. She really, really loved Port. She loved her family and friends, and and like I said, she just loved Port Alberni. This is her home. She had all her best times here. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is part one of an update to Finding Amber, Island Crime, Season 4. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.